Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Medicine. I am your host, Jeremy Kaur. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Lydia Kang. She, along with Nate Peterson, co-wrote the amazing book, Quackery, A Brief History of the Worst Way to Cure Everything. She is here today to talk about this book. Lydia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. I have to admit, I'm extremely excited to be talking to you today. I love the book and can't recommend it enough to anyone who is listening to this. Um, everyone who's seen me reading the book or you know, even just carrying it with me has asked to flip through it and picked out a couple stories, asked me some of the ones that I found to be particularly uh, interesting. Um, it's a very attractive book and a very good read with plenty of humor mixed in as well. Yeah, we are so happy with how the book turned out. Um, one of the goals that uh, Nate Peterson and I, he's my co-writer, um, had was that we wrote something that wasn't going to be dry and boring about the history of medicine. We wanted people to pick it up and laugh at themselves and laugh at the past um, because it's easier to teach when people are really <laughs> having a good time, basically. Yeah, I, I, I will admit I laughed out loud quite a few times while reading the book. Could, could you begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself? 
Sure. So I am a doctor of general internal medicine. I teach at uh, the University of Nebraska Medical Center or Nebraska Medicine, uh, where I do primary care. So I'm the person that people see to help take care of their diabetes and high blood pressure. And I make sure you guys get your vaccines on time. Um, I have been in practice for about 20 years now, and uh, I did my uh, medical school and residency at New York University um, School of Medicine and uh, Bellevue Hospital for my residency. So I now live in the Midwest, which is a big change because I grew up as an East Coast girl, and uh, I've got a couple of kids. My husband is uh, a doctor as well, so we're kind of a big science household. We're a big science and reading household, I should say. I also write young adult fiction. Um, those books include Control, Catalyst, and The November Girl. I have another book coming out in the fall called um, Toxic. And I also write adult historical mysteries that have quite a bit of a forensic anatomic bent. Um, my most recent one is called uh, A Beautiful Poison. So in the fall, I also have another book coming out called The Impossible Girl, which is about a young woman who's actually a grave robber in 1850 New York City. So that was a fun one to write. Uh, there's a lot of history with um, cadavers and corpses and um, <laughs> medical history that isn't such a great history, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, so that one's coming out in September. What inspired you to write this book? So um, the story behind Quackery came from kind of a a weird beginning. So um, Nate Peterson and I were friends before we were co-authors. And his wife and I, um, her name is April Tuholke. She had a book coming out the same time I had a book coming out. And they were our first young adult books. And uh, we were at Comic-Con um, having breakfast together. And she looked at me and Nate. And we all have a kind of interest in sort of really strange, offbeat things. And she looked at me and Nate and said, you guys should write a book together. And we laughed it off. And then um, a couple months later, started thinking more about it. And Nate said, I think we should write a book about quacks. You know, those people who just used to do the worst things to people, you know, to sell a buck, uh, to, to make a buck, excuse me. And um, as soon as he said it, I thought, well, that's a fantastic idea. Why didn't I think of that myself? Because um, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that when you are in medical school, you get this really intensive education on how the human body works and how to take care of it, diagnose things, but we don't get any any kind of class on the history of medicine. So any kind of history of medicine stuff that I had learned, I either learned on my own or there were these tiny little tidbits of information from um from my schooling. So this was an opportunity for me to dig back in time and really kind of get to the heart of some of these kind of awful things that we used to do in the name of what we thought was really good medicine. So that's how it all started. Uh, mercury was is one of the more well-known ones, and it was a very popular medicine for a very long time, and it was used in many different ways. Uh, will you please talk about some of its uses and how the signs of it quote-unquote working were actually the signs of it poisoning the patient? Sure. So, um, you know, it's funny because today everybody's really concerned about mercury poisoning and mercury in your seafood and mercury in your tooth fillings. Uh, so the idea that people would be voluntarily eating large quantities of mercury, sometimes on a daily basis, is just an anathema. 
So one of the most popular formulations of mercury that was used for hundreds and hundreds of years was called calomel, C-A-L-O-M-E-L. It sounds like caramel, but it's the same thing. Um, So it was um, a salt called mercurous chloride. And it was used for everything. It was used for teething babies. It was used for fevers. um, And it was used for syphilis. So there's a big, long history with using um, mercury products for uh, the treatment of syphilis. But the reason why it was used for such a long period of time was because of uh, it kind of harkens back to the humoral theory. So before we really truly understood how the human body worked, um, there was a theory that went back to ancient times that there were these four major humors in the body that dictated what made it healthy or or sick. And those humors were uh, blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm. And if you had too much of one of these humors, it could throw everything out of whack. It could give you a certain type of personality. So if you had a phlegmatic or a sanguine personality is because you tend to have more of that uh, humor in you. Um, and uh, oftentimes, um, you know, for the, the bile, if you had too much of the bile, if you could purge or get rid of some of this bile, you could cure a lot of problems that were blamed on excess bile. So, um, mercurous chloride or calomel, when you eat it, it causes uh, explosive amounts of diarrhea. And it's really uncomfortable. But when you have enough um, kind of purging (laughs) from that end of your body, uh, sometimes um, your bile actually does come out. Like sometimes you'll see some sort of dark colored, greenish colored stools. I I just want to pause here and just apologize for anybody, anybody who's like eating breakfast or lunch right now and listening to this <laughs> podcast. You need a strong stomach to hear the rest of this. So just kind of a warning ahead of time. Um, but um, calomel also might, you know, um, turn black in the presence of certain chemicals. And so they thought, well, this is making bile flow and it's going to cure things. And not only that, um, it was a medicine that when you took it, it had a very strong reaction in your body. I mean, you felt it, you were just running to the toilet or the privy or whatever, and um, you knew it was doing something. And I think there was a lot of thought that if I can feel it doing something, it's actually curing something. So it was a people turn to it quite often for a, a whole host of different ailments um, for a very, very long period of time. Well, I think I'll stick to caramel. Um, <laughs> on the topic of purging, uh, can you please talk about antimony and the power of puking? All right. So anti- my husband and I have like uh, small arguments about how to pronounce this because I think it's antimony and he thinks it's antimony. Um, I think I might have won that. Not exactly sure. But um, so um, antimony is this, um, kind of metalloid. It's a soft grayish, um, metal, uh, that was originally found, um, oftentimes ancient Egyptians used to actually use it to maintain their health because it would make them throw up. And, um, it was also used in the past as a, as a makeup because there is a compound called stibnite. Um, that's where antimony gets its periodic table of elements, um, abbreviation SB, um, as a 
um, makeup. So it was used as coal, which K-O-H-L, which is that sort of dark makeup that was used around the eyes in many different cultures um, in the Middle East and elsewhere. But uh, what they found was that antimony is this really potent emetic. So you take it and it will make you throw up. And this was another method of purging. So you could take your mercury and purge from below, or you could take your antimony and purge from above and throw up quite a bit. Um, And again, this was another way of trying to settle down those pesky humors that were doing things that you didn't want them to do. Um, And they were popular from ancient times up until, you know, the 17, 1800s. Oliver Goldsmith is this uh, famous writer who used to take it. And, um, you know, people in the 16th, 17th century, they love this stuff because they knew it would work. They knew that it would make them throw up pretty quickly. And they thought that would make them feel better. And, and you mentioned it was used in cosmetics. Arsenic is something today also that everybody knows is poisonous, but once was extremely popular in cosmetics and as a medicine. Uh, can you please talk about this for our listeners? Sure. Um, yeah, I think everybody is pretty familiar with arsenic as something that kills other things. Uh, it was used as a pretty potent rat killer. Um, it was a very popular way of killing off kings and queens. And they used to call it the inheritance powder because you could use it to kill off people who, um, if they died, then you could inherit their money. So, uh, has a very long history of that it was also called um the it had some other really fun names the king of poisons and the poison of kings and things like that but um what a lot of people don't realize is that uh, it's really popular um uh ingredient in makeup and uh, face care for a while and the story behind that is because in um, the 19th century, uh, they believed that there was this village of people in this um, place called Styria, which is now we know as part of Austria, who would eat arsenic. So they were called the arsenic eaters or the ratsbane eaters because they thought that arsenic would keep them youthful and strong. And somebody spoke of this beautiful milkmaid that had this milky white skin and she would eat arsenic. And this must be something that other people should do to make themselves beautiful. Um, There's a lot of um, kind of mythology to that story. I think they weren't able to really verify that they were truly eating arsenic in the quantities that um, they claim to be. But, um, what we do know is that it kind of caught on and people thought, Oh, well, this makes my skin whiter because at that point in time, whiter skin was considered more beautiful. Um, and they would do things like eat arsenic wafers or wash their face in arsenic and vinegar. It was also a depilatory. So if you put arsenic on your legs, it would make the hair fall off and like die and fall off. Normally, when you put things on your skin and things die and fall off, that's a bad thing. But in this case, people thought it was great. And there was even this really famous um, uh, woman in St. Louis in the mid-1800s, Kate Brewington Bennett. She was known to be this absolutely gorgeous um, socialite. And she apparently ate arsenic or used arsenic products to keep herself beautiful. And and she died from it. Um, So unfortunately, you know... uh, Dying for beauty was a thing that happens now, and it was a thing that happened in the past as well. Would you please share with us the story of the playboy Evan Byers and talk a bit about some of the ways 
uh, radon and radium were used as medicine? Oh, sure. So um, Evan Byers was this kind of playboy in the 1920s. He was an industrialist. He was a socialite. Um, he had a lot of different women on his arm. And this one time he um, had injured his arm. I think he'd like fallen off of like a birth on a train or something. But um, he'd fallen off and hurt his arm. It wasn't getting better. And his physician suggested, hey, the newest, latest thing is out there. And we think this might really help. And so they gave him, um, prescribed for him bottles of Radithor. And Radithor were these cute little bottles that were certified to have radioactive water in them with um, and radioactive by way of radium. So he started drinking this and he thought, oh, my arm feels better. And oh, wow, I actually feel great on this. So being the rich person that he was, he was drinking well over the prescribed amounts of Radithor uh, to the point where he died from it. He um, had horrible diseases when he died from um, the radiation poisoning, including um, having like abscesses in his head, his complete, his uh, kidneys had failed. Um, his jaw actually had to be removed by surgery because um, he had cancer in the bone, which is something that we know that radium can do. So uh, he's again, another one of those um, situations where having a lot of money is not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> And sometimes the newest and latest the fad that is out there, um, even in medicine, you have to be a little cautious about it before it's well studied and they figure out that actually it can kill you. So, Right. Uh, <laughs> in, in your book, you have various uh, hall of shames, uh, one of them being the Women's Health Hall of Shame. Can you talk about some of the ways uh, various women's ailments have been poorly treated throughout history? Well, sure. Um, I mean, women for uh, so many years um, have been, when you came to healthcare, sometimes they turned to women, um, like in the case of midwives, but oftentimes um, it was men who dictated, uh, you know, what was healthy for them or what was not. And it was a very, um, you know, kind of sexist portrayal of sort of what they thought the women, a woman's body um, should do or could do or, um, fell prey to when it came to different ailments. And so a lot of that sexism is kind of deeply embedded in the history of women's health. So, uh, for example, um, they did not really understand, um, kind of how a, a uterus or a womb worked. They, they thought for a long period of time that the womb was this, um, kind of misbehaving organ that ran around in the body and you had to lure it into place. Um, and, yeah, so because they, they figured if you could lure it into place and there are certain things that could make that happen. So, you know, married sex, for example, or um, if you, you know, put something sweet smelling um, down below near her vagina, that might lure the, you know, and tempt the uterus to go back to where it belongs and start behaving. So it didn't cause all sorts of problems like hysteria, which, again, is this false diagnosis, but was used for quite a long time to describe a lot of these troublesome uh, type situations that women got themselves into um, from a healthcare perspective. Um, so hysterectomies and um, female genital mutilation, these things all happened in time. Um, but um, some of them are just, just completely um, laughable um, as opposed to horrific. Uh, for example, Pliny the Elder thought that if you put the right foot of a hyena on a pregnant woman, it would help her with the delivery. Um, 
<laughs> but of course, so if you're thinking, if you're listening to this podcast, you'll say, well, what happens if you put the left foot of the hyena on the <laughs> pregnant woman, right? So apparently the left foot would cause death. So I don't ask me how they tested this out or figured it out. How do they get the hyena into the room with it? I don't know. I just <laughs> have no idea. But this was, um, these were some of the kinds of um, unbelievable prescriptions that sort of went around. And one of my favorites uh, comes from the Trotula, which is a group of these medical texts that was from 12th century Italy. Um, they thought that if you could take a male weasel and cut the testicles off and carry the testicles as a necklace on a woman, it would prevent her from conceiving. So this was a type of contraception, uh, which is just, I don't know, part of me makes it feel sorry for the weasel and part of me feels sorry for the woman and whoever was, you know, trying to um, get in bed with her because that would just be, I think that would probably turn anybody off from sex, the sight of a pair of bloody weasel, you know, testicles hanging from her neck that just doesn't I so I can see why that would work um, but not for the reasons that they probably thought so <laughs> well I, I have to agree with you that it would make someone a little less appealing um <laughs> in in 1904 the winner of the Olympic marathon had taken strychnine to boost his performance what is strychnine and why on earth had he taken it so this was a gentleman um, named Thomas Hicks, and this was actually in the 1904 Olympics. So he was trying to do the run the marathon, and his trainers were giving him these energy drinks that contained strychnine. Now, the way that strychnine works, it um, originally comes from a, a tree, and the entire tree is completely poisonous. I think it's called Strychnos nux vomica, and it's indigenous to India and Southeast Asia. But people figured out that these parts of this tree not only were poisonous, but in smaller doses, in the slightly less poisonous doses, it worked as a stimulant. Um, so kind of imagine it it's as being sort of caffeine on steroids. So Thomas Hicks, when he was running this marathon, his trainers were giving him these small doses of strychnine to help with him um, with his stamina. So um, it probably didn't. I mean, it probably helped a little bit in the beginning because, again, it's like getting a big jolt of caffeine and gives you some energy. Um, but in larger doses, it's quite poisonous. Um, it causes your muscles to constrict in a really, really painful way. And apparently in some of the latter photographs of Thomas Hicks while he's running this marathon, like he's got this look of sort of strain on his face because I think the muscles in his face and his body are contracting so painfully. And he, I think if they'd given him another dose or two, he officially would have died from strychnine poisoning, but he did survive. But strychnine was used um, as an energy drink for, for some time. I think in the 1800s, it was probably the most popular. Then they even used it to put into um, beer because it gave beer a nice bitterness. So uh, that was just a short period of time. There is not strychnine in beer now. So if you're happy that it's not poisoned with strychnine anymore. So speaking of energy drinks, what are some of the uses of cocaine throughout history? So yeah, cocaine... This one, I think a lot of people actually do know that uh, know this after mm -hmm. they've had a couple of Coca-Colas in their life. At some point in time, someone points to the that bottle and says, you do know Coca-Cola gets its name from cocaine. And they are right. Um, Coca-Cola did originally start out as this tonic that had a combination of cocaine. That's the um, 
that's the coca part. And it also had cola nut and that's the cola part. And it was this pick me up that gave you this jolt of caffeine and cocaine. Um, and it was pretty popular for a while, but after it got more and more popular, they really started to go down on the doses of, of cocaine. So I think at this point in time, Coca-Cola still does have coca extract in it, but doesn't actually have any measurable cocaine in it. So for flavoring, I believe it still has coca extract, but it is not um, illegal, as you know. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't have anything illegal in it anymore. But um, but coca was, um, cocaine, excuse me, was, um, was pretty popular for a lot of different reasons. I mean, it is pharmacologically active uh, compound. Uh, it can cause some numbness. And so topically it can be used as an anesthetic. Um, but it also gave people a big pick me up. And so people did use it sort of to make them feel better. Uh, people thought that it would sort of give them more energy. And, uh, there are a lot of people, you know, that we believe probably were using cocaine. We know Arthur Conan Doyle and Alexander Dumas and Queen Victoria. So many people in history were um, subjecting themselves to the effects of, of cocaine for a long time. Another extremely popular uh, medicine back in the day was uh, laudanum, opium, and heroin. Can you talk to us about the history and uses of those? Sure. So opium, unfortunately, it's really the topic is very current because we are still in the midst of this gigantic opioid epidemic and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. The human race has a long, long history with opiates. We found quite a bit of time, I think even way back when uh, in the time of the Sumerians, this is like the 3400 B.C., people knew that there was something really special about um, opium and the source of it was the opium poppy. So it's this, you know, beautiful flower that doesn't last for very long, but the, the pod of it. So once the flowers fall, you get this pod. And if you scratch the surface of this pod, this milky white latex comes out, you let it dry and you gather it up. And if you process it, it will turn into opium. And opium has these fantastic effects of being able to um, help with pain. It also makes you feel a little woozy, a little sleepy, but it also has some awful side effects like itching and vomiting and nausea. And it, it can make people addicted to it and it can destroy lives and cultures. So um, it's a, a very sort of twisted relationship that we have with it. It's, you know, when people are in pain, it's, it, it is a great thing. But when it's used for other things like soothing crying children or, you know, trying to treat depression or when you're just a little tired and you want to take something to make yourself feel better, you know, those uses are just asking for uh, a, a lot of trouble and they're quite deadly when they're, when they're used in the wrong way. Yeah. So opium as the, you know, from the plant was around for quite a time and it wasn't until, you know, the chemists in the late 1800s kind of figured out, well, what is in the opium that actually makes it do what it's doing? And they were able to find one of the compounds of it, morphine, uh, in 1806. And so I, yeah, I said late, late 1800s, I'm getting my dates wrong. So it was actually in 1806 that, uh, they were able to isolate morphine and they named it after, um, fittingly enough, the Greek God of dreams, Morpheus. So after morphine was discovered, um, unfortunately somebody also created the hypodermic syringe, 
morphine plus a syringe created morphine addicts. And after that, it was probably later on, I think it was around 1870s, that they did a little bit more tinkering. And they wanted to create something that was like morphine, but that didn't, that wasn't addictive. And so they created um, a compound called diacetylmorphine. And they thought, wow, this stuff is so potent. You can use a lot less of it, which means we could get all the effects of morphine, but not become addicted. And they thought this, this medicine was a great thing. It made people feel heroic. And so they named it heroin. So as you can imagine, the story does not end up very good, <laughs> which right. is that, you know, they uh, marketed it as this fantastic cure for morphine addiction, something that was better than morphine. And Bayer was one of the companies that marketed it really hard. They were the ones that were looking for this fantastic drug. And it wasn't, um, it only took about a couple of years before they realized that they were really wrong. And they eventually took it off the market, but it was kind of too late. So, you know, heroin was just this monster that took over uh, a lot of places for when people started on, you know, lower doses um, of opiates and opioids um, and moved on to heroin or street street drugs. Unfortunately, these days, heroin is being completely outclassed by something that's even more potent, fentanyl. But that's a story for another day. In the book, you, you know, one of the other Hall of Fames you mentioned was the Antidotes Hall of, uh, sorry, not Hall of Fame, Hall of Shame, uh, was the <laughs> Antidotes uh, Hall of Shame for various antidotes to different poisons. Uh, what are some of these antidotes that made your Hall of Shame? So uh, this was one of my favorite um, parts of writing the book, the antidotes, because I think it's really fascinating that, you know, throughout history, people are always trying to kill each other off with all these poisons. But while they were doing that, they were also trying to invent or find these ways of protecting themselves so they wouldn't get poisoned themselves. One of them, we, if anybody's read the Harry Potter books, they will know about bezoars. So um, bezoars have been used for centuries as antidotes to poisons. Um, t I think technically... A bezoar is this solid mass of something that's not digested that ends up in the digestive tract of an animal. So it's like a, they would call it like a stone found in like the, the stomach of a goat. But really it was oftentimes like this sort of matted ball of like hair and plant fiber and things like that. But you could find them in all sorts of animals. And they thought that you could take this and it would protect you um, against uh, poisoning. Like if you were poisoned, you could slice off a little bit of this, you know, bezoar and drink it down. Um, or you could wear it as an amulet around your neck and it might protect you. So that's one of the sort of fascinating antidotes that people might have heard of. Um, I know eating <laughs> a, a big ball of hair that comes from a, you know, a cut chewing animal. It doesn't sound like fun to me. Um, <laughs> another one that I think is kind of fun that I had actually never heard of until I did research for this was called Mithridates. So there's this guy named Mithridates VI who was king of Pontus and Armenia Minor. And so this was about 130 um, BCE. And he had this concept, which is a very smart concept, which is that when doesn't if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. So he figured if I eat enough poisons, then I will become immune to them. And um, I, I feel like this is just, this is reminding me of um, the Princess Bride, you know, and the Iocane powder <laughs> scene. <laughs> but, um, but he, uh, so he was fascinated by poisons. He, his house was full of toxic mushrooms and scorpions and stingray spines and things like that. Um, but he 
uh, was trying to consume these things to try to prevent his own assassination. And so he had, I think at some point in time, he made a recipe for this antidote that he claimed would really do the job. And after he died, people didn't have the recipe, but they figured out what they thought would be in it and it had all sorts of really kind of exotic things in it, like frankincense and anise and cardamom and all these, like, I think it had 54 ingredients and they thought that this would work. And some people believed it did. Uh, some people didn't. And in the end, did it work? Probably not, but it probably made your breath smell really good. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, bloodletting was once an extremely common way to get rid of bad blood and balance the humors. What is bloodletting? How was it used? And why was it so terrible? So um, remember when we talked about the four humors <laughs> and um, how the imbalance of the humors, people would try to fix them by putting them back in balance. Well, one of the humors, the blood humor, was oftentimes found to be the one humor that was most in excess and troublesome. So by the quickest way to sort of get rid of blood was to bleed somebody so that you could balance that humor again. And the way that people would do this was they would, um, you know, put a tourniquet on your upper arm and cut your arm and collect a little bowl full of this blood. And they thought this would actually fix things. A lot of people thought that, you know, if your face was a little bit too pink or you seemed a little too congested, that you could get rid of the blood, it would make things better. Um, there was this thought that they didn't understand how blood was made, which is to say, you know, your blood is made in your bone marrow. And after it circulates for a certain number of days, about 120 days, um, those cells die and they're sort of filtered out and you make new blood cells. But it's this ongoing process. And people used to think like, well, you have blood and it, it gets stagnant. It gets old. So you have to get rid of it. And they thought, again, bleeding would help. So there were many different ways that they did this. I, I already talked to you about the sort of lancet method where they put a tourniquet on your arm and they cut, they sort of cut the crook of your arm where your blood vessel is and they let it bleed. But they also use things like scarificators, which were these nifty little kind of brass boxes that were spring-loaded with like anywhere up to like 14 or 16 little blades. So you could hold this box up to your arm and like um, let the sort of spring go there's like a little trigger and then these kind of 16 blades would simultaneously cut your arm and then they would put like a suction device on top of it to sort of suck the blood out. So there are different methods of getting blood out. Um, and the more popular one that we kind of know about is simply because of the existence of barber shops. So if you go to your local barber, uh, these days you don't see them very much um, anymore, but for a long time, barbershops often had that sort of rotating red and white pole or sometimes red, blue and white pole outside of their place of work. And that harkens back to the time of um, the medieval barber surgeon who was the person who not only cut your hair and cut your nails and drained your boils and abscesses, but they would also do the bleeding for you. And um, that pole was oftentimes the pole that you would squeeze when you're, you know, they're trying to get blood from your arm. And those white rags that they would sort of wash out would be the white of the, of the pole. And sometimes they'd be drying on the pole and would sort of whip around it and dry outside of their place of, of work. And that was sort of where the red and white stripes kind of came from, those bloody rags, the white rags, the pole itself, the blue of the vein. But it also not only did it serve as a useful instrument of bloodletting, it was good advertising too at the same time. Can you talk to us a bit about lobotomies and uh, share with us the story of Rosemary Kennedy? So lobotomies is, has, is one of those kind of pages in history that is a bit on the darker side. I, I think that 
you know, when I studied this, I had to realize that the reason for lobotomy came about from the need to try to heal people with mental illness. So, you know, the intent was, was good. I think that some people took it quite a bit too far, unfortunately. Um, one of the most famous, um, practice practitioners of the lobotomy was, uh, this gentleman named Dr. Walter Freeman. So he took, uh, he didn't, he didn't create the lobotomy. Um, it was created by, um, uh, another practitioner named Igas Moniz, but he, he sort of Americanized it. He took it to the United States. He changed the name of it. So he was the one who coined the term lobotomy. And he um, he was the person who, instead of um, doing lobotomy through the temples, actually invented the ice pick lobotomy, which is a, a you know an instrument that looks like an ice pick. It originally was an ice pick when he first found it, and that would be tapped through the orbital bone or the bone just above the eye, and sort of swished around to kind of sever all the connections in the frontal lobe. But when he um, was asked by uh, the Kennedy family to um, attend to Rosemary Kennedy, who apparently had a lot of um, issues with developmental and cognitive issues. Uh, she was very childlike in a lot of ways. They called on Dr. Freeman, and he had not perfected the ice pick lobotomy at that point in time. And so he did perform a lobotomy on her where he um, did some incisions and holes on the temples in order to put in a, a, a knife that was uh, kind of a thin, flat knife to sever all those connections in her in her frontal lobe. But unfortunately, um, you know, some people did survive this and had some improvement from a mental illness standpoint. Many of them became more debilitated and, and more ill, as was the case, unfortunately, with Rosemary. So she unfortunately had to be institutionalized Um after that, pretty much disappeared from public view after that procedure. So it's this really, really sad part of our history. Um, but it was some of the first kind of um, neuropsychiatric surgery uh, that was done um, at the time. And we did learn a lot about the human brain from what happened, but unfortunately at, at a huge cost. The, the pharaohs of ancient Egypt had their own specialized healthcare servant, uh, honorably named Guardian of the Anus. Would you please share with us the history of enemas? Sure. So the enema, which is something that we don't really like to talk about because we generally don't like to talk about those parts of our bodies that need attending to in, in that way. Um, but for a long time, people didn't really feel so shameful or um, kind of you know squicky about that. Um, a lot of people understood that your gut health and, you know, your bowel health was an intrinsic part of your overall health. And the ancient Egyptians truly believe that um, with good reason, you know, that um, what goes on in, in your uh, intestines does reflect on, you know, sometimes how the rest of your body is doing. Uh, and so they, they took it very seriously. So they did practice enemas. Um, and enemas have been around for a really, really long time. And the word actually originates from a Greek word for to throw or to send in. And uh, the Latin word is actually a little bit closer to what an enema sort of does. It's to inject. Um, but the the term and the practice has been going on for a huge period of time. Um, people didn't just use water. They would use things like milk and molasses and even turpentine and honey and beer and soap to cure a lot of things because people figured if you are constipated or you need a quote, cleaning out, unquote, it could fix other things in your body. And so things like depression or appendicitis or headaches, they thought that if you could just clean things out down there, that all these things would get better. 
so, so yeah, the enema is a big part of our, our medical history, much as we may not want to actually talk about it, but it was, people thought it was a pretty fantastic thing. Some like King Louis the 14th, uh, was a huge fan of them. I think he had something around 2000 enemas in his lifetime and he was happy to talk about that. So, <laughs> and it's, I think to this day, uh, people are still pretty obsessed with their bowels and their, um, regularity for good reason. Um, because everybody wants to be healthy and to be regular. And when things go, um, a little bit out of whack, people do get worried about that. And this is one of the methods that is still used today, uh, for treatment of constipation, although hopefully not for the same reasons that people used it before, which was the idea that like, you know, you have this, these toxic things inside you that need to get out. Unfortunately, enemas don't clear toxins from you. You know, your body detoxes itself quite well by itself. It's built to do that. But, uh, that the kind of quackery around detoxification of your internal intestines continues to this day. You still hear ads on the radio and in the news for this kind of stuff. So that, even though that's been very well debunked for quite a long time, it still happens. I don't know if I'll ever be able to look at Versailles the same way. No, probably not. <laughs> uh, what are some of the various forms of fasting and detoxes uh, that have been used throughout history? Fasting and detoxes, is we think about them a lot now because there has been a lot of discussion about intermittent fasting and the healthiness of that, um, whether or not fasting can actually improve longevity. And there's some really interesting um data behind that, which uh, we won't go into too much today. Um, but suffice it to say, the idea of, of fasting as a means of being healthy um, has been around a while. Um, in ancient Greece, they thought that fasting was really good for your body. There was this, uh, this guy named Paracelsus, who's mentioned multiple times in the book, that he also thought that it would be really, really good for your body. Um, but some people took it a bit too far. So there was a lady named Linda Hazard who opened up this sanatorium in Washington State. And this was in the uh, early 1900s. And she told people that they would get um, healthier if they ate less. But uh, she took it to the point where people actually were starving to death at her sanatorium. So again, everything in moderation, <laughs> including starvation, is probably a, a good thing to remember. But uh, some people took it to the degree of eating things like just air and sunshine, like some people thought that they could survive on those types of things. And you still hear about that today, too, about some people who are breatharians who believe that, you know, just all they need is sunlight to, to and air to live off of. And they don't actually need any food, which is not physically possible. But, yeah, breatharianism is, is something that uh, some people really do still believe in today. Well, while we're, while we're on a similar topic, you have another one of those uh, Hall of Shames in your book about the uh, weight loss Hall of Shame. What are some of the terrible ways throughout history people have tried to lose weight? Probably one of the worst ones was the tapeworm diet. <laughs> I don't know how real this one is. I think that they said that you could basically send out some money to a mail order company, receive these tapeworm eggs, and you would eat these eggs and the tapeworm would basically eat your cake for you. So you could have your cake and eat it too, but you wouldn't absorb the cake. 
I don't know how often these tapeworms actually were alive or if they were just a complete scam. Um, but the idea of having an actual tapeworm that could grow up to 30 feet, and it was just a terrible idea. <laughs> I don't think anybody today would consider that as being something that they would want to do. Um, parasites are generally not a good thing. They can cause seizures and they could, you know, you get eggs in your brain depending on the type of parasite. It's a reason why we like cooked pork is because we're so afraid of parasites. So obviously not a great idea. Um, some of these other, um, one of my other favorites is this guy named Horace Fletcher. So in 19, he was, a uh, he was around at the turn of the century. Um, but he was called, um, forgive me, the great masticator. And he believed that if you excessively chewed your food to the point where it, was like basically liquefied and then you just keep chewing it until there's like nothing left and that you would be healthier. But of course you're basically spending your entire meal chewing and chewing and you can't talk to anybody. And apparently your, your bowel movements would be turned into these little biscuits and he would actually show people his bowel movement and be like, look at this nice dry little biscuit. That is my, forgive me, like my turd. And he would show people, I, I, I just, that this person actually existed and did these things is just kind of hard to believe. I know we always say like chew your food. Did we all hear this at some point in time growing up? Like chew each bite like 20 times and you'll lose weight. Well, he took it to like a thousand <laughs> times, a little bit to the extreme. So I'm sure that that would make you lose weight, but you would have a horrible life if you spent right. all your days chewing your food and doing nothing else. So, well, <laughs> <laughs> While we're talking about kind of gross things, uh, your book on cannibalism and corpses was probably the most disgusting and was also one of my favorites. Can you please talk about this for our listeners? Sure. Um, this was one of my favorite chapters, mostly because it was so far removed from what we consider to be socially appropriate today. I mean, uh, we, we've decided that it is okay to borrow from other bodies for the sake of health. So, um, you know, the gifts of organ transplantation is just amazing how we've come so far with that and skin transplants and cornea transplants and blood transfusions, things like that. But the actual idea of consuming somebody else's deceased body, not, not even breast milk because that's like, can be voluntarily given, but like, you know, somebody who's like dead and consuming that as a means of getting healthy to, it just kind of blew my mind when, um, when we were writing this, the chapter for a long time, people thought that you are what you eat. So if you could somehow get your hands on um, a body that was in its prime of health and you could consume some of that body. It could be fresh blood. It could be liver. It could be their actual body or their skull ground up that you could too consume that good health and make yourself well. So that was the theory behind it. And a lot of people really did do this. Um, we found, um, some articles of, I think this was from like 1758 about, uh, hanging that happened in England. And the writer of the article said that after the person hung, um, they, a child about nine months old was put into the hands of the executioner who nine times with one of the hands of each of the dead bodies stroked the child over the face. So they, rub the dead body against this child in order to heal the sort of skin affliction that the, that the child had. And this was a common occurrence at a lot of, um, executions in England was using these dead bodies to make yourself healthy because there was something 
magical about that corpse that could that could fix things. People also, the executioners oftentimes harvested the fat from these executed criminals and turned them into these salves that they would tout as, you know, healing arthritis and skin problems and all sorts of things. And they, I think they called it hangman salve and they oftentimes called it um, man's grease as a way of um, another treatment that came from a human body. And people were totally okay with that. People also drank blood. So um, there's this story about people um, going to fallen gladiators and, you know, collecting some blood into a cup and drinking it because they thought that it would help epilepsy, which is one of the illnesses that sort of shows up time and time in the book because people could never find something that would really cure it. And so, so many different treatments were used to try to cure epilepsy, but drinking human blood was one of them. Um, and also because some people thought that there was a relationship between where you took the, like which body part you were consuming and what it would help. So people seem to recognize that epilepsy was a disease of the head of the brain. And so that if you could, you know, consume parts of a skull that might actually help. And so skull, like ground up skull was found in a lot of different medicines to treat epilepsy and other things like headaches and that sort of thing. Um, King Charles II of England um, was a huge fan of this elixir that he he um, had purchased from this guy named Goddard, and he called them Goddard drops, and they did contain actual human human skull. So these were just a couple of the things. Um, if I have time, I'll talk about mummies too, because Egyptian mummies were completely pillaged, stolen from tombs, and ground up and used for this treatment. Um, that was considered one of the best remedies ever for anything that you couldn't heal. So um, there was a huge trade in these stolen Egyptian mummies because people thought that it would, you know, treat the plague and cure everything, epilepsy, jaundice, headaches, all these sort of things, even snake bites, ground up mummy could do these things. And and in addition, just like things happen today, uh, there were also fakes on the market. And so there was fake mummy that people were selling to, to try to make a buck as well. But it's, it's just, you know, it's just kind of horrific what they what they did to these tombs and stealing of all these um, these corpses to make this medicine. But it went on for quite a while. Earlier, we talked about the Women's Health Hall of Shame. Uh, would you mind sharing uh, with us some of the some of the terrible ways that men's health has been treated on your men's health hall of shame? Oh, sure. So the men's health hall of shame. Wow, there are so many different things that men have tried to do to try to improve their virility or make themselves look uh, look better. So probably this one is maybe one of the scariest ones. There's something called the Stringer self-treating device, and it. It was basically a four-in-one like vacuum, moist heat, vibration, and electricity, and it was supposed to help with erectile dysfunction. Um, it it literally looks like this torture device, but apparently people did buy this and try and try to use. <laughs> um, people also uh, ate strychnine and Ty Cobb and Jack Dempsey and. Pope Benedict the 15th, um, they all tried this stuff called nuxated iron, which was, I think, iron with cinnamon and strychnine. And they said that um, it would bring back vitality and, and, and uh, virility. So did it, did it work? Probably not. Or if it did, it was at the, uh, the risk of poisoning yourself at the same time. So 
Uh, while we're on the topic, can you talk about some of the various sexual therapies and treatments that have been used throughout history? Sure. Uh, I mean, sex has been considered to be um, this part of health that was really chased after. <laughs> I'm like trying to find a good word for it. Um, so, uh, for example, you know, we had spoke, spoken a little bit about hysteria. You know, Hippocrates wrote ex- extensively on the topic, even though he didn't coin the word, but he, he talked about what was later coined hysteria, which was this problem with the wandering uterus. And that, you know, if you could try to satisfy it with sexual activity, it would, you know, cure a lot of problems. Um, later on in the Victorian era, they decided that, well, if, you know, if from a medical standpoint, if, if a woman could be brought to what was called a hysterical paroxysm, which was a euphemism for an orgasm, then, um, then she could get that sort of pesky wandering uterus and that hysteria to calm down. Um, and so it was a, a medical treatment that eventually they turned to, um, the electronic, the electric, excuse me, vibrator, um, to do the work of these exhausted physicians to try to help with this. Um, and that was how the vibrator was actually, uh, that was how it was created was from this idea of this wandering uterus that was causing problems and hysteria in women and had, and how to cure it. They had other sorts of really strange things that people try to do to to help with um, keeping sexual health and sexual impulses like under control. So everybody probably has heard of Kellogg cereal, um, but uh, <laughs> the guy that the name actually comes from, John Harvey Kellogg, was a physician um, in Michigan, and he um, his idea for for being healthy included, you know, healthy eating and maintaining a good weight, lots of exercise, all that sort of stuff. But he also really thought that masturbation was incredibly detrimental to your health. Uh, and so he thought that, you know, eating healthy was one way to cure people's urges to masturbate. And so that was kind of how these, this kind of, his cereal was basically born, um, because, uh, the, it was the food. It was originally called granula, but I think the cornflakes were actually um, what they originally ended up calling it. But, you know, Kellogg's cornflakes were an anti-masturbatory creation. Um, so I just ruined your breakfast. I'm sorry about that, y'all out there. Um, <laughs> but the guy who came before Kellogg was this guy named Sylvester Graham. And he is the guy who created graham crackers. I mean, they weren't, I don't think, the sweet sort of graham cracker that we have today. But Graham, the graham cracker was originally this, you know, product that was supposed to be really pure and without additives. And it was supposed to be this part of this vegetarian um, diet that had no alcohol and it would help you fight the urge to masturbate. So now I've ruined s'mores for you, too. So <laughs> sorry, about, sorry about that. <laughs> I tell you what, when I read the, 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 the Kellogg's thing in the book, I about died laughing. I'm never going to be able to look at like cornflakes the same way ever again. Um, Not quite. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lydia, I, I've taken up a lot of your time today and I, and I really appreciate you talking to me. Um, I have one more question for you, though. What are you working on now? Uh, so I have... Um two books that are coming out this fall that I mentioned before, and they are um, Toxic, which is a young adult space uh, story. And I have another book called The Impossible Girl, which again is that um, 
Grave Robbers book set in 1850 that's coming out in September. So you can keep an eye out for those. And um, hopefully there'll be more books coming in the future. Um, Nate and I will be looking into a follow-up book for Quackery, but no news on that yet. So we'll let you know. Well, thank you again so much for your time. Once you uh, announce and finish that book, that's the follow-up, you'll have to keep me posted. I really wish we could have shared you know, a lot more of the, the, the stories from the book today. It was amazing. Um, I highly recommend it to everyone. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. We had a fun talk. <laughs> <laughs>